Preventing Falls in the Hospital, Evidence-Based Assessment and Interventions. Hi, I'm Laura Cullen. I'm the Evidence-Based Practice Coordinator for the Department of Nursing, and Renee Gould is with me today as well. We're going to share with you our initiatives within the hospital that have been important for fall prevention for our patients. Neither Renee or I have anything to disclose. Our objectives today are to describe the evidence-based practice process for fall risk assessment and to discuss components of the fall prevention program, including interventions for the most common activities associated with inpatient falls, those being mobility and elimination, describing the impact of patient falls on staff, and then discussing some future directions for fall prevention in acute care. I'd like to first just review a little bit of the evidence around falls and fall prevention. Falls are, in fact, the most common adverse event in hospitals. It's the sixth leading sentinel event reported to the Joint Commission. The Joint Commission started a national patient safety goals around fall prevention in 2008. Since that time, there also continue to be falls, and in inpatient fall rates that have been reported vary from 1.7 to 25 falls per 1,000 patient days, with injuries occurring in a percentage of those falls. A small percentage, 2 to 8%, actually have serious injuries, and a, a smaller percentage than that um, can actually contribute to death. Fall risk assessment then becomes one of the first steps in fall prevention because identifying the patient's risk factors can lead to prevention strategies. So our first initiative started because a staff nurse said that they were concerned about the fall rates on their unit. We followed the Iowa model, which is our evidence-based practice process for this nurse-led initiative. The staff nurse was um, participating in the evidence-based practice staff nurse internship program in 2001. That program helps provide facilitation and mentoring for our staff nurses so that they can function as project leads. That uh, initiative started addressing evidence for fall risk assessment, and then moved into a hospital-wide initiative for fall prevention, and then moving on to addressing the needs of patients that are multiple fallers. We were fortunate to have access to experts who had two funded initiatives about around fall risk assessment as well, and they participated in team members sharing their expertise. Fall risk factors reported in the literature are quite voluminous. Risk factors tend to be physiologic or environmental and are referred to as intrinsic or extrinsic, respectively. The history of falling is one of the greatest predictors of a future fall, so is typically included with any kind of fall risk assessment. Additional physiologic or intrinsic risk factors include cognitive functioning. So these would be patients that have delirium, dementia, agitation, anxiety, some other cognitive impairment, or impulsive behavior or inability to follow directions, also contributing to a risk of falls. Age and gender, we know that patients that are older and men tend to fall more often. Altered or impaired mobility contributes to falls in our inpatient settings as well as altered elimination. Comorbidities, including Alzheimer's, depression, diabetes, multiple sclerosis, stroke, syncope, arthritis, and a number of other comorbidities or physiologic conditions like anemia, um, thyroid deficiencies, bleeding times, also contribute to falls for our acute care patients. Certain medications can increase a patient's risk for falling as well. Um, typically, those include anti-epileptics, chemotherapy, laxatives, diuretics, psychotropics, sedatives, benzodiazepines, and others also can contribute to a patient's risk for falling. Fear of falling actually ends up having a cyclic impact where a patient that is afraid they're going to fall actually changes the way they mobilize, which can contribute to an increased risk of falling. So reducing and eliminating a first experience of falling can be particularly helpful. 
Some environmental factors that can increase the risk of falling include staffing. There's a little bit of mixed research, but some recent research showing that there may be correlations with staffing, and those correlations may be in specific clinical settings um, more than generalizable. So there's a lot yet to be learned about staffing and its correlation to falls, but there are some early indications that staffing patterns may in fact uh, impact falls. Having floors that are slippery or cluttered certainly contributes to falls, poor lighting, bed rails or side rails. Time of day at some points um, and in some settings can in fact contribute as well and those actually may be covariates with staffing contributing to falls. And then some settings like rehab settings also where the patient condition is really trying to increase their independence can actually also contribute to falls. The research shows a number of fall risk assessment tools available for clinicians in the acute care setting to consider using. The Morris scale is used most often, um, but there are many, many fall risk assessment tools. This list could actually be extended beyond that. Um, and UHC data shows that the Morris scale also is the one that is reportedly used most often, but there are a significant number of falls reported to UHC that don't use any scale at all. I'm not proposing any particular fall risk assessment scale. All of them have challenges associated with them, so I'll talk um, specifically about fall risk factors um, and some considerations to think about with fall risk assessment tools. Some of the issues with fall prediction and use of fall risk assessment tools, it's, it's very difficult to study prospectively. Most of these fall risk assessment tools really were created through a retrospective approach uh, using chart data which does create some challenges. In the ideal world, we would have fall risk assessment tools that have predictive validity in that we know that they are effective in identifying risks for falling and are in fact predictive of risk for falling. But it's very unlikely that we're going to have risk assessment tools that have established predictive validity that is sufficient for us in practice. Given that, we also want to think about the sensitivity, specificity, and inter-rater reliability for fall risk assessment. Sensitivity means that our risk assessment tool identifies a patient at risk for falling, and they do, in fact, go on to fall. Specificity counterbalances that sensitivity, where specificity refers to the risk assessment identifying a patient not to be at risk for falling, and they go on not to fall. Interrater reliability is relevant because we want to have all of our nursing staff coming up with the same conclusions when they are doing their fall risk assessments. So interrater reliability means that different nurses will in fact get the same results from their fall risk assessment. So when we're looking at our fall risk assessment tools, we are really looking at sensitivity, specificity, and interrater reliability. Additional issues with fall risk assessment are the fact that there are validated instruments, and you saw that list a couple of slides ago, but there is clearly no consensus on which assessment is best. The risk assessment itself does not prevent falls. It's actually linking the risk factors with fall prevention strategies or interventions that are most helpful. It does take time to complete the fall risk assessment, and in addition to the time to complete the assessment, it takes additional time once a risk factor is identified to go on and identify interventions that are appropriate for that patient to be individualized for their plan of care. That work then is critical for fall prevention. There also is concern about an over-reliance on a total risk score. So these fall risk assessment tools that have been developed have also been trying to validate fall risk assessment scores when in fact the score is less important in patient care than the risk factor and listing the risk factor linking that directly to the interventions. So again, focusing on a total score is going to be less helpful. The process that we used at University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics was to follow the Iowa model for evidence-based practice. We had a trigger. The staff nurse, as I said, identified that their unit was at high risk for falling, and they, in fact, had our highest fall rate. 
This unit had medical and psychiatric patients, so patients had to have both an acute medical condition and an acute psychiatric disorder to be on that unit. When we compared their fall rates to patients on other units who had acute medical conditions or on units with acute psychiatric conditions, not surprisingly, they had a higher fall rate because, in fact, they had a higher risk um, assessment as well. So that triggered the process. We reviewed the evidence. We looked specifically at risk factors that were reported in the literature. We looked at tools and decided to select one to trial comparing our currently used UIHC tool with one of the tools reported in the literature. We decided to select the Hendrich Fall Risk Model as our tool to pilot. We used evaluative data from the pilot to make recommendations for practice for nursing across the department, but used a phased rollout approach so that the change in the fall risk assessment could be incorporated into um, practice across the large number of units that we had involved. And then moved from fall risk assessment and evidence-based approach for that to evidence-based interventions for fall prevention. The purpose for the fall risk assessment project then was to develop an evidence-based fall risk assessment for patients on the medical psychiatry inpatient unit to improve knowledge and use among nursing staff. Karen Reedus was our staff nurse functioning as a project director. We had a team of nurses um, working to support Karen's work representing medical surgical nursing, representing um, our research team and our quality department, as well as psychiatry and occupational therapy. And then I supported the project through the Nursing Research Office. When we looked at the evidence comparing our fall risk assessment tools, as I had said before, we wanted to look at sensitivity, which was did the tool pick up the patient at risk for falling that would then in fact go on to fall, specificity, meaning did the tool identify patients that were not at risk for falling that went on not to fall, and then inter-rater reliability so that we knew nurses would actually get the same results from the risk assessment. So in comparing what our UIHC tool was with the Hendrich Fall Risk Model, the Morris Fall Scale, the Heslin Scale, and the Stratify Scale, you can see that all of them have actually fairly similar sensitivity, specificity, um, and inter-rater reliability. But using this and taking a feasibility approach in thinking about these different tools, that's how we ended up choosing the Hendrich tool to pilot. We asked nurses prior to implementing the evidence-based fall risk assessment pilot for feedback about fall risk assessment. They told us that in fact the current tool was easy to use. Comparing that feedback after the pilot, you can see that comparing the Hendrich tool and the UIHC tool, they still felt that the UIHC tool was a bit easier to use. We asked them if they felt knowledgeable in using the fall risk assessment tools. Again, because of their familiarity with the UIHC tool, it's not surprising that they felt more knowledgeable about using that tool than using the Hendrich fall risk model. We also asked for their thoughts regarding the fall risk assessment guiding interventions. They did report that they felt the, the Hendrich model would in fact help guide interventions better than our current tool. So in looking at our pilot results, we actually found that the UIHC tool and the Henrich tool gave us statistically significantly different results. The McNamara test gave us a comparison of the two tools and told us that we had statistically significantly different results, but did not tell us which one would in fact be a better tool or which one was predictive. And our sampling and our methods were insufficient to do that level of research. This was evidence-based practice. So we knew that it gave us different results, but it didn't tell us which was better. We did find out that the internal consistency, meaning that the variables within the tools hanging together to help us with fall risk assessment was better with the UIHC tool than the Henrich tool. We did look at specificity, but um, didn't have sufficient uh, sample data or a sufficient methodology to really be able to utilize that. Um, and then we went on to look at our patients that fell. We had two patients fall during the pilot. One patient did not have complete assessments for both of the tools prior to the fall, so that patient's data was not included in the evaluation. 
We then had only one patient that had a fall risk assessment completed using both tools prior to their fall and decided that because it was only a patient with an NM1, we wouldn't be able to use this information to help us make a decision about practice. So in looking at the feedback from the staff, the data from the pilot, we actually decided we would retain but update the current UIHC fall risk assessment tool. So what we had found is that the tool actually had evolved from the first research done establishing the tool. It had been revised in use for our paper documentation system. It then had been revised again when we had moved from a paper system to an electronic system. So in those revisions, we had actually moved farther away from the original research, and there was more evidence out in the literature to help guide us for definitions for the variables within the fall risk assessment. So the updates then brought that research-based tool back closer to the research as well as being informed by the evidence that was now available. We also decided in practice that we wanted to increase the frequency of the assessment to daily. We opted to choose 1800 for our daily assessment because we felt at that point nurses working both 8 and 12 hour shifts would be familiar with their patient. It wouldn't require add-on assessment, but they'd actually be able to identify and answer uh, the items within the tool accurately uh, at that point in time. We also wanted to have the assessment completed when patients were admitted and transferred or when nurses felt that there was a change in clinical condition. All of those could in fact contribute to fall risk uh, changing and felt that we wanted to include that nursing judgment and identification of patients' risk for falling. Because while the assessment tool would pick up some patients at risk for falling, there is also clearly evidence supporting the fact that nurses could identify patients at risk for falling, but they didn't always match what the fall risk assessment tools would pick up. So combining that fall risk assessment tool with nursing judgment would actually increase our ability to identify patients that were at risk for falling. Then one of the critical decision points was providing support for the nurses to link the fall risk assessment and risk factors with interventions so that that work could help them with clinical decision making. We then went on to see how well our completion rates were with fall risk assessments and found that we actually had very high completion rates. So that contributed to our quality data showing that falls, falls were actually being assessed um, by nurses or that risk for falling was being assessed by nurses at a very high rate. So then we could move on and look at our fall prevention strategies. Hi, I'm going to go over how we prevent falls in a hospital, but first I want to start with a definition. And this definition comes from the National Database for Nursing Quality Indicators by the American Nurses Association, the NDNQI. It's a 2011 definition. And they define a fall as an unplanned descent to the floor with or without injury onto the patient. It includes falls where a patient lands on a surface that you wouldn't expect to find the patient. Whether they're assisted or unassisted, they're included. Um, and whether they are a result of physiologic reasons such as fainting or environmental reasons such as a slippery floor. We also include as a fall um, when a patient rolls off a low bed onto a uh, mat. Um, assisted also is defined and assisted means that a staff member, whether it's nursing service um, employee or not, um, was with the patient and attempted to minimize the impact of the fall by easing the patient's descent to the floor or in some manner trying to break the patient's fall. For example, if they're walking and the patient becomes weak and the staff member lowers the patient to the floor. The staff in this case was using professional judgment to prevent injury to the patient. It does not include a fall, um, assisted fall, where the patient's family members or visitors assisted them. And assisted is not um, including when we assisted the patient back to bed um, or to the chair after a fall. Hospital falls can be very serious. As a matter of fact, the fatal falls in elderly, 10% of them occur while they're in the hospital. When we look at our hospital falls, 55% of them do occur in patients who are 60 years old or less. But when we look at the falls that have moderate to severe injuries that occur in the hospital, 60% of them occur in our patients who are 70 years um, or older. This graph shows the um, 
the faults um, that occur based on age range. And this comes out of a large database of the um, UHCPSN database from 2008. And you can see that the largest number of falls occur in our patients who are 50, well, um, 51 to 60. And then the next category is 61 to 70. So you can see that the elderly patients are falling while in the hospital. And where are they falling? 42% of all falls reported um, in 2008 in this database occurred on the med surge floor, medical floor, rehab, surgical, or psychiatric unit. So five areas accounted for 42% of all the falls. Falls are a very serious and common problem in hospitals across the nation, and they can cause very serious injury and even death. Um, they do um, have a number of outcomes, and one is that they extend the length of stay for a patient. Increased health care costs as their stay is increased, and there might be additional interventions, tests that we have to do um, while the patient's being worked up for their fall. And they also can decrease the patient's independence. Once a person falls, they may become fearful of falling a second time, and then they'll um, reduce their mobility, um, become more weak, and then increase their risk for another fall. The Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, reported there were 193,566 cases of fall with trauma in hospitals in 2007. And they estimated um, over $33,000 in additional costs per hospital stay in these patients. So CMS has identified this as a never event, meaning that this is one of the hospital-acquired conditions that could be prevented. So that when a fall occurs, which re results in a serious injury, such as a fracture, dislocation, or um, head injury, the resulting medical care will not be reimbursed by Medicare. So it's important that we, for the patient's sakes and also for the hospital's sake, that we prevent injuries um, that are both accidental and unanticipated physiologic falls. Implementing a falls on program will not eliminate all falls, but successful programs will reduce rates by 30 to 40 percent. Um, there's a lot of literature on fall prevention, but there's little about um, little for the absolute impact of any given intervention. But when healthcare professionals believe they can prevent falls and undertake improvement programs and really focus on falls, success can be achieved. So some key interventions that we need to have in hospitals to prevent falls is we need a strong fall prevention program. And this program requires organizational support. Leadership has to identify and really support an interdisciplinary falls prevention team that's clinical and non-clinical staff to oversee a fall prevention program. We need reliable processes for comprehensive and interdisciplinary um, clinical assessment, communication, um, and risk factor intervention plans. We also need education, and this education is both for pa patients and families and for staff members, both clinical and non-clinical. Um, in the hospital. And we also have to have a, an environment where we're promoting learning and ongoing evaluation and improvement of fall prevention, including uh, looking at the fall rates and looking at the injuries. I'm using a fall risk tool and, and uh, prevention protocol by itself will not really impact on falls or falls with injuries. We need organizational support by making fall prevention a priority with all departments, all disciplines, knowing the plan and the outcomes. Um, interdisciplinary team to oversee the plan, perhaps use of unit-based champions, policies and procedures um, that are based on the patient population and unit, organizational support for recommendations that the team makes on equipment and environmental safety. Some of these team members include, like I said, the leadership to make fall prevention expectation, nurses who will assess plan, intervene, and communicate the patient's risk and what their plan is to prevent their falls. Physicians and LIPs review meds, assess for the patient's risk for an injury if they do fall, getting referrals as needed. Pharmacists to look at their meds, watch for side effects and drug interactions, and medication reconciliation across the patient's care sites, and also our um, PT and OT friends to make a plan, share it with the patient, family, and all the nursing staff so everybody's on board with what the plan is for this patient. And also we need to have um, housewide education of the hospital's policies and procedures. All staff, whether they're housekeeping, dietary, um, or if they're um, nurses, they need to know the hospital's policies and procedures for fall prevention. They need to know um, what risk factors are, what we do after a fall, um, how to prevent falls, and then also environmental um, issues that we might come across to prevent, that we need to intervene on to prevent um, patient falls and to promote safety in the hospital. 
Laura's gone over the um, various risk factor tools that we've identified, and it's key that we use a tool and we assess all patients um, upon admission. And then it's key that we do reassessments, and the reassessment really depends on the patient, but at the minimum, it's daily. The time of the assessment would really depend on the patient population. Um, many times at the end of the day after pa patients may have had um, procedures or tests might be appropriate, but if it's in the morning when patients are post-op and they're getting up more the next morning, maybe it's in the morning that we need to do that reassessment. We also need to reassess with any change in the clinical um, condition of the patient after procedures when they've been transferred from one site to the other and for sure after a fall. We also need to um, look at the patient for their risk of a serious injury if they were to fall. And some people um, will call this the ABCs. Um, the A is for age, anyone who's over 85 um, years or greater um, is at greater risk for an injury. Um, bone is if they've got risk factors for fractures such, such as osteoporosis or um, other conditions that put them at risk for osteoporosis if they've got metastasis of cancer to their bone. Coagulation increased risk for um, bleeding after trauma or fall, and that would be a patient who's on anticoagulation therapy or if they have a bleeding disorder. And then the S is for surgery, especially abdominal surgery. They could have a wounded hiss with a fall or thoracic or if they've had um, a lower limb amputation. We have interventions for um, preventing falls that we use for all patients regardless of their risk. These are referred to sometimes as universal fall um, interventions. Um, some of these make really very common sense. Orienting the patient to the room and how to use the call light, making sure the call light is within reach, making sure that patients have their um, aids or glasses, their hearing aids, so that they can see where they're going and hear the instructions that we're giving them. Um, good lighting and keeping the room uncluttered, which is sometimes a challenge in the hospitals get rid of equipment that we don't need in the room, um, keeping items within reach so that patients aren't reaching over to fall or are trying to get out of bed to get something, and then keeping the floors um, clean and dry. Um, side rails. Um, side rails, you want to only put one or two side rails up. Really, um, three or four puts a patient at risk. If the patient um, were to try to climb over them, that would increase the distance of their fall to the ground. And also, patients have gotten entrapped in side rails. So side rails are really used when it's going to be useful as an aid for the patient to help them um, hang on to them to get in and out of bed. Um, but we have to always use that with the risk of if they're going to climb over them, have the side rails would be more of a hazard. Um, having things for the patient to hang on to in the bathrooms, in the hallways, on handrails to hold on to. Always the bed low, um, in low position, and wheels locked. Um, warning patients about things that have wheels and might move on them, such as IV poles, bedside stands, bedside tables. And then what the patient is wearing on their feet is very important. They should um, be in a non-slip, well-fitting footwear. Shoe would be good. If not bad, a, a slipper that's not skid on the bottom. And then also that they should um, reposition slowly as they are, are getting up so that they um, don't get lightheaded. But once we've identified a patient at risk for falls, whether it's the score or it's the nurse's um, gut feeling or their high risk for uh, injury if they fall, we really need to put um, additional interventions in place for that patient and put them on fall precautions. And it's really key that we communicate this patient's risk to everyone who comes in contact with the patient and to the patient and family members. And different hospitals will use different um, visual identifiers such as um, signs on the door. We have falling leaves um, at UIHC, but um, wristbands, there's a standard yellow colored wristband that the um, Hospitals will use buttons, stickers, posters, something on their medical record if they've got paper charts. Um, call light system, there might be a sticker, something by that call light, so when staff answer that call light, they know that that patient's at risk. Uh, things above their bed, signs in the bathroom, um, and banners that may be on an electronic medical record. And everybody in the hospital needs to understand these visuals and know what they mean, as do um, family members and um, patients, and they need to know how to help. So if they see somebody trying to get out of bed, they need to know how to call for help. In addition to communicating the risk, we need to communicate any special handling um, interventions that we've put in place for that patient that give them clues, such as that the patient needs two to transfer, they use assistive device, or they have a history of falling, so that um, 
the patient-specific fall risks are identified and followed through. And that might be putting it on um, a whiteboard. But we have to be careful of signs because people really get blind to signs that are up on the walls. The next thing is um, patient and um, family education. Fall prevention is multifactorial and education is a very key piece. We need to use various types of, of teaching methods, um, written, verbal, videos. If we can do some teaching prior to admission, um, that's good. Explaining to the patient you know, after surgery why they're going to be at higher risk for a fall and re-educating um, throughout the admission all the way till discharge. And it's really helpful if we can have the patient teach back, tell us back what they've learned so that we understand we can assess that they have um, understood what we have told them. And then healthcare communication, it really, I have to, um, anyone who comes with that contact with that patient needs to know about their risk for falling and their risk for um, getting a serious injury if they were to fall. And we need a seamless transition of this information from shift to shift, from unit to unit, from department to department, a standardized handoff so that all sites of care, whether they're going to radiology or procedure to surgery to physical therapy, that everybody um, knows the special needs of this patient. So there's the visual cues, uh, maybe a transport checklist or a patient passport. And then also it's key that when a patient comes back from a procedure, that that report includes maybe what puts them at risk for a fall once they get back to the unit, such as medications that they've received for a procedure. This is an example of a banner um, that occurs in our medical record, but also um, we print off a ticket to ride, which is some basic, we have an electronic medical record, and so this gives some basic information about the patient since there's no paper copy of the chart that goes with the patient. This is a paper um, informational sheet that goes with them, and we have a banner across that, says, that communicates to anybody that they're um, high risk for a fall, and these tickets to ride are printed off before the patient leaves um, one site to, to go to another site and travels with the patient. So and what are people, um, what are patients doing when they fall? Um, this table shows that, and this comes from the um, PSN database in 2008, this shows that the most common um, thing that people are doing when they fall are ambulating and toileting. And then the next one is lying in bed and made me think, you know, is lying in bed. It could be that we didn't know what the patient was doing. We just found them on the floor and last time I saw them and they were lying in bed. Or it could be, I've seen a number of um, falls where patients are reaching for something and they um, slip out of bed. As far as, so um, ambulating, toileting, lying in bed, and then sitting in a chair, transferring, and then sitting on the edge of the bed. Oftentimes people will just slip off the edge of the bed as they're sitting there. As far as time of day, um, when they looked at the data in this um, large database, there were three times that they noted an increase in um, falls, and it was one to two hours after meals. Um, does that suggest maybe the patient was getting up to the toilet? And when, when we look at our own um, data at UIHC, um, this is data from a three-month period of time where um, it shows what the patient was doing when they fell. And our top two um, activities were toileting and ambulating, switched around from what that um, database had, but still the top two things they were doing and then lying in bed. So with those two um, activities being the, associated with most of the falls, um, we're going to focus on interventions and risk factors for elimination and mobility. So some of the risk factors for um, mobility and elimination um, issues are dementia. Um, patients with dementia have a slower reaction time and some impaired judgment and they also have impaired strength. So it's really key that we assess mobility to identify patients who are at risk. What does their gait look like? Are they weak? Are they uncoordinated? Have they um, have um, decreased balance? And medications are really key when assessing a patient's risk for a fall. If a patient's on four or more meds, um, it puts them at higher risk. There's a lot of interactions and adverse drug events with medications. There's um, classifications of meds um, that are higher risk, the anticonvulsants, antidepressants, um, the benzodiazepines, um, et cetera. And with the medications, there's a, a plethora of side effects, drowsiness, gait imbalance, coordination, slow reaction time, orthostatic hypotension. We tend to overlook orthostatic hypotension. We really should be checking that on patients. Um, if they have a drop in their um, blood pressure when we're standing them, we need to hold off on our activity because it's just going to get them into trouble. Um, diuretics can cause frequency um, and urgency, and if they get, become hypokalemic, they can become weak. 
and other issues with elimination are diarrhea, nocturia, and incontinence. And one thing I often see is the patient who's got the urgency and uh, frequency and um, diarrhea is that they'll make their way to the bathroom, but they don't make it, and then there's they become into a slip um, hazard when they urinate on the floor. And so that can be very um, disruptive. So we need to do interventions that really help um, the patient's strength and mobility. We need to promote mobility, promote them becoming um, active in their um, activities of daily living, um, regular ambulation um, spread out across the day. Make sure that the patient has their assistive device and look at the assistive the device. Look at the walker, look at the cane. Is it in good shape? Um, is it the right size and height? Um, is it safe for the patient or does that need to be adjusted while they're here in the hospital? Um, exercise. We want to improve their strength, their mobility, um, their gait. Go back to the shoes again. They need to wear shoes or non-skid footwear and rise slowly. Any of us, if we jumped right out of bed, we'd um, become lightheaded. So they need to um, be instructed to move slowly and um, reposition slowly. And then make sure we have chairs that have support and armrests so it's easier for these folks to get um, in and out of the chairs. Um, establish a toileting schedule, and this is during the day and during the night. A lot of people don't, um, staff don't want to wake the patient during the night, but that's, if they don't wake them and take them, then when the patient wakes, it's going to be getting to the bathroom um, with enough time. Um, establishing a bowel routine and making sure that there's safety bars in the bathroom and that the call light is within reach. Um, one thing we have found is that sometimes it's hard to for our elderly folks to even see the light, the cord light um, kind of blends in with the walls. So making sure that the light is with, the pull light is within reach and then also something that they can see. And then do not leave the patient unattended in the bathroom. Um, so many falls are related to toileting and there was one study that showed that half of the falls um, related to toileting, the patient had been left alone to void um, after they were assisted to the bedside commode or to the bathroom. And I know our staff will want to allow the patient privacy, but we need to weigh that privacy versus the safety. So it's keeping them safe, but allowing them privacy. And it might be this, that you're peeking through the bathroom door and seeing where their knees are so that you can catch them before they get up because they don't want to bother us. So they'll try to get up on their own. So do not leave patients unattended in the bathroom. Some additional interventions are making sure we've got good lighting so they can um, see where they're going. Elevated toilet seats make it a bit easier for them um, to get off the toilet. A gate belt might help give them a little guidance. And then also we need to really minimize things that immobilize the patient, restraints, um, and also urinary catheters. Um, when we have falls and they're in the bathroom, bathroom falls are especially hazardous because it's such a tight spot and there's so many hard surfaces for that patient to fall um, against. Mm -hmm. Additional um, interventions, uh, making sure that patients have their um, glasses and hearing aids and that they're in use. And then if a patient um, has a weakness on one side, making sure that we set that room up so it's easy for that patient to get around um, so it favors that stronger side, that unaffected side. And then really key is having a plan for when the patient is too weak to get back from sitting, toileting, or walking. I think just because the patient got there doesn't mean they can get back. And you need to have a plan B. Um, this is not the time to be worrying about their um, mobility when um, we're putting that risk for a fall. So really need to assess after a patient's been on the toilet or as they're walking or if they've been sitting a while, is this patient going to be able to make it back um, to the location that they're aiming for? Some additional interventions, just some general interventions, which we would choose based on the patient's other, other risk factors, and we would customize these throughout the stay, are um, placing the patient near a nurse's station so we can visualize them and get, get into the room quickly. We might consider a sitter. Um, hourly rounds. Um, we did hourly rounds in the past to assess patients for change of condition, but hourly rounds today really are expanded to include comfort and safety. And this would include doing a pain assessment, but also offering toileting assistance. Offer the patient, I've got time, I can take you to the bathroom right now. Repositioning, making sure that the patient's call light and belongings are within reach and the telephone so they're not reaching over and slipping out of bed or feeling like they have to get out of bed to get those, um, those items, their TV uh, controls, their urinal, making sure that that is within reach. And then also as you go through, making sure that there aren't any um, environmental hazards or um, 
risks that we need to, to look into. And this is really important for patients who have um, altered mental status and also incontinence problems. So hourly rounds um, can help prevent falls. Um, chair and bed alarms, um, this will give us an idea that the patient is either on their way out of bed or that they're out of bed. And depending on the patient's other risk factors, it may be too late, but in some cases, um, alarms will help the nurses, especially if there's a if it goes into the call light system where the nurse can get it very quickly. Um, also reviewing the medications for um, the number and the potential side effects. Evaluating for orthostatic hypertension, I mentioned that before. Getting an OTPT evaluation. Um, going, I said that, mentioned the environmental rounds. And then also considering low beds and mats. A low bed is a, a bed that's about eight to 10 inches off the ground. So, and then a mat is placed on the floor. So if the patient were to, to fall out of bed, they're, um, the, the length of their fall would be uh, minimal and hopefully decrease their risk for an injury. Now we mentioned sitters. I want to share a little bit of information about sitters. In this um, UHC um, database in 2008, um, of the over 23,000 falls, there were 2% of patients, or 506 patients, who fell and had an order um, for a sitter at the time of the fall. And of these patients, 430 of them, the sitter was present when the patient fell. Um, 30 of the patients fell when the sitter um, was, had left the area. The, the sitter may have gone to lunch or may have gone to check on another patient. Uh, there were 37 of the patients um, who had the order, but there was nobody sitting with them because they couldn't find the staff. There wasn't staff available due to staffing, and then the nursing staff. And then there were 129 patients who, after they fall, after the patient had fallen, they had gotten an order um, for the sitter. So there are studies that suggest really questionable effects on the fall rates when you use sitters. Um, but studies that involve observation or surveillance of nursing really appear to be more consistent positive effect on fall rates. So um, sitters, as long as they're really watching and observing and surveillance may be helpful, but oftentimes um, they're not. So we talked about um, patient falls, um, risk factors, and interventions. Um, let's look at the impact of patient falls on the staff. Um, falls can very negatively impact nurses and their work environment. Um, nurses, nursing staff, have the highest incidence of work-related back injuries of all occupations. There's over three-quarters of a million working days that are lost annually as a result of back injuries um, in nursing. And the majority of nursing-related um, injuries are related to patient transfer and repositioning. Um, a list of 16 stressful patient handling tasks have been identified in nursing, and the top four are um, transferring the patient from toilet to chair, chair to toilet, chair to bed, and bed to chair. Um, also, nurses um, may become injured while assisting a patient who is falling, and also while trying to move a patient after they have fallen. So this is um, the data from UHC. This is one quarter where we looked at all of our falls, and I showed you the slide where um, our toileting and ambulating. But this slide um, separates out which of these falls were assisted or which of them were unassisted and assisted. Um, like we said, the definition is that it was the care provider was there um, with the patient and potentially breaking the fall. So this puts the pa the um, the goal is to decrease the staff, I mean the patient's risk for an injury, but it puts the staff member at a very high risk of injury as they're assisting um, a patient's fall. And so you'll see that toileting and ambulating um, are the highest falls that nurses are assisting with as, as well as transferring. So I'm using pa safe patient handling equipment to facilitate a patient's transfer or walking can prevent falls and can also prevent staff injuries. I'm anticipating a patient's loss of strength during activity can be helpful. Um, for example, once we get a patient in the chair, like I mentioned before, they may not have the strength to get back. Or as they're walking down the hall, they may become weak and they may need some assistance. Um, so injuries also occur when we're trying to remove, uh, move a patient after a fall, assisting them to an upright position or lifting them off the floor to a bed or a gurney. How many times I've seen lifted off the floor with a cyst of five. Um, we're just putting the nursing staff at risk for an injury, and also it's not the most comfortable thing for a patient um, to be pulled and dragged and lifted like that. Um, 
So if a patient does fall, using a safe patient handling equipment to help them off the floor um, is more comfortable for the patient and also decreases the staff member's risk for an injury. So this slide shows um, three examples of equipment that we um, do have at UHC that we can use for um, moving patients. All three of them can be used for transferring from chair to bed, and then the opera actually can be used to um, assist somebody up off the floor. Additionally, when a patient falls, there's a, uh, more work for the nurse um, post-fall. Um, besides physically getting the patient back into bed, and uh, we also have to notify the physician and the family, and then we need to assess the patient for injury. I'm watching. It's also key that we watch um, for days to make sure that that sore hip doesn't turn into perhaps a fractured hip. So um, we have to ongoing assessment. We may be transporting the patient for um, x-rays and CT scans uh, depending on their fall and their risk factors and their symptoms after the fall. Um, if the patient has evidence of uh, hitting their head, we'll be monitoring the patient for neuro changes and then we need to be documenting the fall and um, all the monitoring we've done after the fall and the notification of everybody, the physician, the family, and filling out an instant report. So a patient fall will consume um, the, pa the nurse's time. And additionally, um, there's stress for the patient um, staff and family if there's a serious negative outcome. So if the patient does end up with a serious injury, it's very upsetting for all parties involved. So um, what can we do um, to help learn um, from falls? It's really important that after a patient falls that we use that fall um, as a learning opportunity to have a post-fall huddle um, so we can learn from the fall or maybe even the near miss and really analyze and review what happened. Um, those people who were there, who saw it happen, who were involved with the patient, and look at the factors that may have contributed to the fall. It also helps nurses in their critical thinking skills um, it increases the effectiveness of the interventions, and also it helps the unit build their knowledge of fall and, and, and injury prevention. So looking at what happened, what were the risk factors, did the patient get an injury, what interventions were in place when the patient falled, and what interventions do we need to put in place um, for here out to help prevent that next fall. Um, also, it's important that falls are reported so that the fall program can be monitored and evaluated for quality improvement. Um, organizations who look at their falls can see a 30 and really have a, a good program in place can see a 30 to 40 percent reduction in falls, but it sometimes takes a while for this, um, these effects. So in um, looking at the data from falls, the, uh, the fall rate is based on the number of falls per 1,000 patient days. Um, when you're looking at falls with injuries, those rates are um, calculated by the number of injury falls per 1,000 patient days. And it's really important that when you're looking at your data that you benchmark um, externally. Um, it's good to look at your data within your own institution to see if there's um, special cause variation going on, but you really need to benchmark with a like unit and a like institution to really compare yourself of um, ways to improve. And then also it's a good um, way to um, network. And then another um, evaluation tool a unit might use is days since fall, kind of like the um, construction industry, a number of days since an injury. So in summary, um, we really can do a lot to prevent falls in the hospital and we can make a difference. Um, in preventing those falls. The key pieces are assessing the patient's risk for a fall and also assessing the risk for an injury if they were to fall. Communication and education about the patient's risks and what we're doing for them. And this is both with the patient, the family, and all the folks and all the um, employees of the hospital, anyone who's going to come across that patient. And then we have standard interventions for all patients, those universal precautions. But also we need to look at an individual patient's individual risk factors um, and what puts them at risk for a fall and what puts them at risk for having an injury and customize those interventions based on the patient's individual risk factors. And then we really need institution-wide support and accountability to preventing falls and patients' um, injuries from falls. As you can see from Renee's discussion, she's played an instrumental role in implementing evidence-based interventions to prevent falls and to prevent fall injuries. 
So that work has been critical to build off of and also to look at as we plan for the future. Some things to consider and issues that will continue to grow as we move into um, continuing to expand fall preventions, to think about the fact that our elderly population will grow. We also have more and more patients that are in fact using assistive devices. The veterans population is one example of a patient population with increased use of assistive devices, but it really crosses other populations as well. We also have increased emphasis on injury prevention in addition to reducing our falls and preventing falls from happening in the first place. Staff uh, and staff safety continue to be an issue as we have shortages and expected growing shortages of nursing staff. We're going to need to be addressing the issues around staff safety so that we can keep our workers in the workforce. Some of the answers um, for addressing safety safety can be found through use of technology, and Renee has shared some of that with you. We have increasing use of technology in other areas as well, and using our electronic health record to help identify patients that are at risk, linking those risk factors with interventions also can help with clinical decision support. We need to better use um, the electronic health record to help with fall prevention and expect that that technology will increase in the future as well. There are increasing expectations for continuity across our healthcare settings. And addressing and identifying patients' risk factors and interventions that are effective for fall prevention is information that should be shared to promote continuity across healthcare settings that are supporting patient care and continuity in patient care delivery. We have increased incentives for um, fall prevention related to pay for performance, and I expect those to happen um, as CNS continues to push pay for performance with value-based purchasing. Um, certainly fall prevention will fit in that in the future as well. We have increasing customer involvement and want their participation in care delivery, so including patients and their families in understanding fall risk factors and interventions that can be helpful for fall prevention will help facilitate their involvement in care delivery for preventing falls. We also have increased reports in the literature of evidence-based fall prevention programs that have been effective that help supplement that research literature identifying fall risk factors and interventions that may be helpful for fall prevention. So as those reports continue to grow in the literature, the expectation is that we will continue to use and expand those in our fall prevention programs. It also actually increases the bar that we're going to be trying to meet across our acute care settings. Um, and then I expect those reports, both from research and evidence-based programs, to actually contribute to our understanding and revision and regulatory standards that are addressing fall prevention. Renee and I have a few resources that we like to share with you around fall prevention, and the websites are listed here for you. The CDC, the Hartford Center for Geriatric Nursing Excellence, the Hartford Foundation, the Joint Commission. The VA has a National Center for Patient Safety and a Fall Toolkit. The Institute for Clinical System Improvement has a nice clinical practice guideline. And the National Guideline Clearinghouse has a number of guidelines that may be helpful for you in planning your fall prevention program or expanding what you're currently doing. Reducing Harm from Falls, an IHI website, and then another citation that may be helpful to guide fall prevention. We are sharing our email with you. If you have any questions, we'd be happy to try to answer those. Um, we're happy to have been able to share with you our fall risk assessment and fall prevention programs based on using the Iowa model and implementing evidence-based strategies that have been effective in our organization. You may, though, have some follow-up questions, and Renee and I would be happy to uh, answer those. So we're sharing our emails in order to facilitate that discussion. Thank you.